The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, as we, we talk about uh, one of the greatest topics in all of the Bible, this morning we talk about heaven. In fact, uh, we're going to look at a passage which kind of runs out of chapter 3 and chapter 4. I, I wish that I could have preached uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 to you together as a unit, but it would have taken a couple of hours, so we split those apart over the last three weeks. So I want to remind you a little bit about what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's, he's sharing uh, the story of faith, of what our faith means to us, of uh, how it's in Christ, in Christ alone. He's 100% God, he's 100% man, and how it changes our eternity. But while he's sharing the gospel, he's using, because he's primary, primarily writing Jews, he's using Old Testament illustrations to prove his point. And this morning he comes to the place in this study, and I, I hope your Bible's starting to fall open to Hebrews now. We're, we're right in the study of it. He comes to chapter 4, and the first thing that I want you to see, is going to be talking about the hope of heaven and the promise of God's rest. Now, the passage is all about heaven, but the word heaven is never mentioned. What we're going to see, instead of the word heaven, we're going to see the writer using an Old Testament concept, because he's writing primarily to Jews, and he's going to be talking about God's rest. But he's talking about heaven. And I I want you to see it, and I want you to understand it. The the world thinks about heaven. Uh, uh, Glenn just told this story of this Ruth, this African mother who passed because of AIDS, and, and she... She's only got uh, really two concerns in life, where she's going and what's going to happen to her children. And when you sum up your life, you begin to understand that your 401k is not really your greatest concern. Your car is not your greatest concern. Your job, your promotion, not your greatest concern. Because you have been, your soul has been imprinted with the image of God. You have in you a yearning, a desire, a, a wanting for immortality. You want to know that there's something more than this life. And I suggest to you, whether you're in perfect health and you're quite prosperous, or you're an African woman dying of AIDS, I would suggest to you that ultimately you get to the place where you know there must be something more than this world. And this is what God has imprinted on your heart. Made in the image of God, he made you for eternity. And so here in this passage, we're going to read about eternity. We're going to read about heaven. But I don't want you to be tricked or duped thinking, well, this isn't really about heaven. It is. It's just that you're going to read the word rest. Now, when I was a kid, I would hear some of the old timers, some of the great Christians of the faith who are a lot older than me, talk about, I can't wait for God's rest. And when I was a kid... I was active and I wanted to play and, and rest didn't seem like such a good idea to me. You'd, you'd go to visit your grandparents when you were a kid and what did you do? You sit on the front porch in a little swing like this. And it would drive me crazy. And so some of us, we think, 
the reason we don't want to go to heaven is we think, oh, you're going to get wings and you'll be an angel and you'll get a harp and you'll have a cloud. And that's really not what God's talking about when he's talking about his rest. He uses this illustration, you're going to see it here, of the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a, it's a land with rivers and mountains and valleys. And, and so God's rest is something bigger than a nap. It's something that is uh, integral to the soul of every human. It has to do with peace. It has to do with calmness. It has to do with perfect communion. It has to do with fellowship. Have you ever had that friend or maybe a person you would call a soulmate, and when you're with them, you're just at rest? It's fun. You talk back and forth. It's really comfortable. They energize you. That's what he's talking about with rest. Here's the best way to understand it. You also have another person in your life who does not bring you rest. When you spend time with them, they suck the life out of you. If you're sitting next to them, don't look at them right now. Do you see the comparison? So this is what the writer is beginning to talk about. Now, in America today, 80% of Americans believe in heaven. Did you know that? Not 80% are believers in Jesus Christ, but 80% of Americans, we still have this this residue of a Christian nation, they believe in heaven. 45% of Americans believe there are many ways to heaven, and 30% of Americans think after you die, you're going to get another chance to get to heaven. I don't know where that belief comes from. It's what they want to believe. What I'm telling you is there are people who have imprinted the soul. They, they know there's something more to life. And so they believe in heaven. Here's the craziest thing. As I was doing this research, I ran across an article by Mackenzie Neeson, who's a well-known atheist who writes on uh, the, the, the value of being an atheist. And I find an article by Mackenzie Neeson that says, if you're an atheist and you don't believe in God, it's still okay to believe in heaven. I read the article twice. I still don't get it. But you know what I get? There's an atheist who's still imprinted with the image of God and who yearns for something more even though he hasn't come to faith in Christ yet. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 4, okay? Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, this is where we're talking about eternity, heaven, still stands... There's still a promise. It's still for you. It still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as it did them. Let's stop right there for a second. Who's the them? Well, he referred to them back in chapter 3. They are the generation who came out of Egypt, saw all the plagues, saw the death angel, had the Passover, walked through the Red Sea on dry land, went through the wilderness, got the law from God. The Shekinah glory of God came down. It was on the tabernacle. Moses' face glowed when he came back. These are the people who, when they were hungry, he gave them manna. When they didn't have any water, water came from the rock that he spoke to. These are the people who saw God do incredible things. And he says they experienced the message. Now I'm back in verse 2. But it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith 
with those who listen. So there's a second thing I want to talk about before we read the rest of the passage. The passage is about heaven. The passage is about God's promise for us. But there's something else that the writer is going to talk about here. You think, this is a pretty long passage about heaven. He uses rest 12 times. 12 times he's talked about heaven. But he doesn't talk about streets of gold. He doesn't talk about pearly gates. He doesn't talk about your mansion. What he talks about is the fact that not everyone enters into God's rest. The thrust of this passage is a reminder not everyone makes it. In modern America, those 80% of people who believe in heaven, I bet if we had a chance to survey them, 79% of them believe they're going to make it. We kind of believe that heaven's like a government entitlement program. We all kind of deserve it, and we're all probably going to make it. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. Kind of a spiritual laissez-faire, and we'll all make it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The thrust of this passage, if you start in chapter 3, and you read it seamlessly through chapter 4, the thrust of this passage, the thing that he's saying over and over and over again is, not everyone makes it. And his illustration is profound. He picks the generation that should have been the most faithful, the generation that should have had the most saved people in it, the generation where most of them should have gone to heaven. He picks them. They were in Egypt. God sent them Moses. They saw the plagues. The the death angel came. The Egyptians came and gave them their gold so they would leave. When they started to leave, the most powerful army on the planet at that time trapped them against the Red Sea. The Red Sea opened up. They walked through. They turned around and watched the most powerful army at that time completely covered by the Red Sea. They needed manna. They needed food. They got manna. They needed water. It came from a rock. God did miracles. If any generation on the planet should have believed, it should have been this one, and they didn't. And the writer of Hebrews' conclusion is not everybody makes it to heaven. That's what you've got to see in this passage. Let's continue reading. He says in verse 3, For we who have believed... Now, he's talked about faith about four times already. Let me point it out to you. Uh, Last verse of chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they, talking about that generation that came out of Egypt, they were unable to enter the rest because of unbelief, because of a lack of faith. Then in verse 2, the good news. What's that? That's the gospel. That the message of faith it talks about there, that's for those of us. We're, they were not united by faith in verse 2, but we who have faith, who have believed, we enter that rest. So we see all of that there. But he also begins to quote what he said in chapter 3. And what he said in chapter 3, he quotes from Psalm 95. The Lord said, I swore in my wrath, my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, Somewhere it's spoken of, of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in the passage that we just read, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Not all, not everybody makes it, but some of us do, since it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news, that's his third reference to really the gospel and the good news because they received the good news that they, they received they got the good news but they failed to enter because of disobedience god appoints a certain day 
What day do you think God would appoint for your salvation? Tomorrow? Next week? Next year? No, it's today. He says this through David so long afterward in words I've already quoted back in chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, maybe you're having a little hard time following that. So let me see if I can pull it apart for you. There are some elements of God's rest that the writer's talking about here. So what are they? First of all, it's God's rest. It's God's rest, and it's his to give. The fact that you're an American doesn't mean that you make heaven. It's not an entitlement. You don't get it just because. God has it. It's his heaven. He, he reserves the right to give it to whom he will. Now, here's the good news. And he talked about the good news, the good news, the message of the good news. Here's the good news. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The good news is that Jesus Christ died for all men, especially those who believe. The scripture is, he says over and over, he wants you to receive Jesus Christ, to ask for the forgiveness of sins, to acknowledge your sin, to acknowledge that you're separated from God and you're not going to heaven. When you acknowledge that you're not going to heaven and that your sin is separated from you, you from God, now you're at the place where you can go to heaven. As long as you think you're going to make it because you stand pretty good in your own good works and you're better than sitting in the pew down from you, you're not going to make it. This is what he's talking about. Secondly, in this passage, not only do we see it's God's rest, he gives it, but we understand who makes it. We understand something about heaven by the message of the good news. There are so many, and you can just you can do it if you want this afternoon. Just go on Google and Google heaven, and you can read all kinds of cockamamie ideas. There are some people that you go out on a beautiful mountain in Montana, get your fingers like this, home. And you can come up with some idea about heaven or nirvana or reincarnation or how you get there or how you don't get there. Or you can claim that an angel appeared to you and you can write what you want. But the truth is God defines who gets there and who doesn't. And he's given us this gospel. He's given us this good news. When you, when you read the New Testament, what is it that every single writer of the New Testament has in common? That the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. This is the gospel, that our sins separate us from God. We, we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us seek after God. No, not one. We're separated from God. We're separated from his heaven. This is what the writer's writing. And just when we start to think, well, wait a second. No, really, we should all make it. Every time we do that, the writer goes, uh-uh. If, if we should all made it, if any generation should have ever made it, it was the generation that came out of Egypt. But they didn't make it. They didn't even get to the earthly rest of the promised land, much less the spiritual rest. So then you're like, well, then who makes it? The answer is, it's attained by personal faith. Look at how many times he talks about faith. The end of chapter 3, verse 19. The, the good news of faith in chapter, or verse 2 of chapter 4. The verse 3, we, those that believe enter it. He's talked about faith and faith and faith. Uh, last week, I was asked a really good question about the sermon. And maybe it's already come to your mind in the sermon today. So I'm talking about this generation. Actually, the writer of Hebrews is talking about it. I'm just trying my best to explain it to you. 
He's talking about this generation that comes out of Egypt, walks through the Red Sea, goes to the promised land, says, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't want that, and then they die in the wilderness over 40 years. And what the writer said over and over again is, they rejected God, they didn't enter their rest. So the question that I got was, none of them went to heaven? The, The whole group? And so the answer is really clear here. Yeah, some of them went to heaven. We know Moses did, right? Miriam is faithful. Aaron is faithful. We know Joshua and Caleb are faithful. Their families are faithful. There are other great names in there, Phineas and Eleazar. But we're talking about them in general as a generation. But how do you get to heaven? We don't go to heaven as a generation. We receive Jesus Christ as individuals. You see, you don't go to heaven because your mom and dad are Christians. You don't go to heaven because your husband's going or your wife's going. You don't go to heaven because your kids are going or your best friend's going. You must make the personal decision. It must be your faith, your repentance, your trust in the Lord. And so even as it works that way in the New Testament, it worked that way in the Old Testament. Here's another question I get asked sometimes. How do people in the Old Testament get saved? The writer of Hebrews here in chapter 4 is actually alluding to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4. Abraham was saved by faith. Moses was saved by faith. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says of Abraham, he believed and it was credited to him for righteousness. Here, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, he's saying to us, it's by faith. In the Old Testament, by faith they look forward to a Messiah they believe would come. In the New Testament, we look back almost 2,000 years by faith believing that that death, that Jesus died on the cross, That death is the payment for my sins. But whether it's on this side of the cross or that side of the cross, it's all the same. It's by faith. So that generation, I don't know what the number is. 90% of them? They didn't make heaven. Only two of them made the actual physical earthly promised land. That rest, Joshua and Caleb. So as a generation, they didn't make it. Now, in some ways, that should be comforting to you because we live in an American generation that has rejected Christ. I want heaven, and I want Jesus. Uh, Years ago, I was part of a a bus ministry. A church had a bus ministry where we picked up mostly children, but we picked up people from impoverished areas and gave them a ride to church. And so uh, I was driving the bus home uh, one day, and uh, I had a wonderful elderly black lady that used to ride the bus. That was her transportation to church. And so I'd, I'd often drop off the kids first so I could I could keep her a little longer. I loved uh, conversation with her. And so uh, it was just the two of us on the bus, and we're riding home, and she's looking out the window. And it's a day kind of like today. It's just kind of a beautiful spring day, and all the families are outside, and they're cooking outside, and they're throwing Frisbees. And she says, just kind of out of nowhere, she says, isn't it interesting how everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go to church? I, I never forgot it. It was full of wisdom and insight. And that's really the truth, isn't it? Everybody wants to go to heaven, but I don't want to turn over the steering wheel. I don't want to turn over the control. I want to be the boss of my life. I want to do what I want. I don't like that the Bible condemns me in certain places. You can't do this and you can't do that. I don't like that. And so many people reject Christ, but somehow think, They're going to get into his heaven. 
The last thing that I want you to see here in this first part of the passage about the elements of God's rest is that this heaven, this gospel that's preached, is still available to you. We see it in verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest still stands. Look at verse 6. Since therefore that remains for some to enter it. I want you to know this morning, if you feel a tug in your heart, if you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you, if you know that you've never really given your life to Christ, I want you to know this morning you can receive Jesus. It says here further down in this passage, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There, There are two ways this window will close for you. Number one, it can close in death. Even though 30% of Americans think that you get another chance after you die, you don't. The Scripture says you're immediately either in the presence of the Lord or in hell. We find that both taught in, both of those taught in Scripture. The, the second way that this window may close for you is if you've heard the gospel and you've heard the gospel, you've heard the gospel and you've heard the gospel, and then Jesus Christ comes back, you're not going to receive the gospel. The rapture will end this time for you. The one who convicts, the one who convinces will be taken out with the church. And so that happens just as well. So I'm saying to you, here today, based on the authority of God's word, you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit in your heart, it's not too late for you. Maybe you've rejected the Lord for 10 years or 20 years or 30 or 40 years. I want you to know today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. God waits to forgive you. He waits to give you eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and that heavenly rest can be yours. There's a second half of this this passage, though, that starts in verse 8. The second half of the passage is about the nature of God's rest. First, we see the elements of God's rest, but what about the nature of it? Well, beginning in verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest... Now, remember, they came out with Moses, but not even Moses went into the promised land. It was Joshua that would lead them to the promised land. He's still using this earthly symbol of the promised land as a picture of God's rest. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another rest, another day coming later on. So the conclusion is, in verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested Notice these are past tense statements. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let me give you four parts of the nature of God's rest. Number one, it's spiritual. The writer of Hebrews is saying Joshua's rest, the promised land rest, was just a picture of the real rest. How do we know that? Because they eventually got into the promised land, didn't they? But even after they got in the promised land, God kept saying, there's another rest. There's an eternal rest. You were made for immortality. You were made for communion with God. There's still something more. So we see it's spiritual in its nature. Secondly, we see that it's symbolized by the Sabbath. Uh, Back in verse, is it verse 4? Back in verse 4, it talks about God rested on the seventh day. He created the Sabbath, so there's still a Sabbath rest to come. Remember, he's writing to Jews. So he's, he's used the Jews that come out of Egypt. He's used creation. Here's his picture with God at creation. God created the world in six days. This is not the image of God. After the sixth day, God didn't go, I've got to take a rest on the seventh day. Anybody think that's God? Anybody think that God runs out of energy? He's not infinite. Anybody think that that it took too much out of God and he had to rest? God didn't rest because he needed the rest. 
God was resting as a picture of the Sabbath rest for us. Number one, you in your weekly life, you need time to rest. God demonstrated that. But he also demonstrates something else. The work of this, of this world isn't the purpose for which you were made. I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do with your hands. Maybe you, maybe you make quilts. Maybe you knit. Maybe you put old cars back together. Maybe you do uh, models. Maybe you, can, maybe you can take your hands and create something else. That's, that's, not, that's not what you were created for. You weren't created for work. You were created for rest. That's what you were created for. Perfect communion, rest with God. The comfort of communion. The perfect place where you are at rest. So the conclusion is, there's a future rest still to be realized. He wants you to understand this. He says to the Jew, it's not just about getting into the promised land. There is a future rest. God created you for eternity. But fourthly in this, there is a present rest. Remember this verse where I pointed out all these, all these words were uh, past tense, verse 10? Whoever has already entered God's rest, if you're here this morning and you've given your life to Christ and you've asked for the forgiveness of sins, you've already entered, past tense, God's rest. You say, well, I'm not in heaven yet. No, he's not talking about the future rest. He's talking about what's going on presently. You, ha- you also have rested, past tense, from your works, even as God has. So there's a present rest for the one by, who by faith has received it. This is what Jesus was talking about when he says, God will give you a peace that will pass all understanding. You don't get that when you get to heaven. You get that now. God God wants you to live differently than the unbelievers who live in worry and anxiety. He says to us, who can worry themselves into gaining a a cubit of stature? Who can worry themselves into living longer? Who, Who can worry themselves into gaining more money? He says, don't you know how much God cares for you? He keeps track of sparrows. How much more are you worth more than sparrows? He knows how many hairs are on your head. They're numbered. He knows everything about you. He is the everlasting God who loves you with an everlasting love. He's the Abba Father. He loves you, and you don't have to worry. What God gives is a peace that passes all understanding. He gives you a present rest. Have you ever known anybody who in the middle of the whirlwind, in the middle of the tornado, in the middle of the fire, in the middle of the war, they are just at peace? This is what God intends for you. I'm not talking about apathy. I'm talking about somebody who knows the peace of God that passes all understanding. This is what God's talking about. So here's the passage. The passage is probably one of the longest passages about heaven in all of the Bible. But it doesn't say streets of gold and gates that are pearly. It doesn't talk about angels in their wings or harps and clouds. It talks about the fact that you were created. God, who created you, designed you to be with him in perfect communion, in perfection for all of eternity. But the big thrust of the passage is, hey, most people don't make it. That's what he says to us over and over and over again. As a final evidence of God's rest, we have 
the most well-known verse of the book. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. How many of you, by show of hands, would say, I have heard this verse before in my life? Would you raise your hand? Okay, put your hands down. How many of you knew that the context of this was not a big passage about the Word of God? It's all about heaven. I I think I, I can quote the verse. I've quoted a bunch of times, but I always use it to talk about the Word of God. The context of chapter 4 is about heaven. Rest is what he says 12 times. He only says the word once. What's the writer saying? What's his point? It's backwards of the way that we think. As Americans, we think one day when we get to heaven, that will prove that the word of God was true. The writer of Hebrews is saying the opposite. We know that Heaven is true because we have the Word of God. Think about it just for a second. The Jews that came out of Egypt, they watched Moses go up and get the Word of God. God came down in His glory, and on one occasion when some of them said, Moses can't tell us what to do. We can elect our own leader. God said, everybody wants to be on Moses' side? Stand over here. Everybody wants to be on Dothan's side? Stand over here. And they did. And then the earth opened up, and everybody on Dothan's side got swallowed up by the earth. Can you believe watching that happen and still not believing? That's what the writer's talking about. And so he says, be careful. Pay attention. Don't fail in this. Now, there are New Testament examples as well. They're not in this passage. Judas walked with Jesus for three and a half years and he didn't believe. The Apostle Paul says about his previous life, before he came to that, he said, I, uh, in terms of the Israelites, I was the best of the best. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. Touching the law, I was a Pharisee. I was the best of the best. But when God strikes him down with a bright light on the road to Damascus, he has to say, who are you, Lord? He doesn't know God. And the answer is, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Do you know what that testimony proves to us? You can be religious and lost. Nobody was more religious than than Saul before he became Paul. Judas saw it all. The children of Israel in Egypt saw it all. So the writer of Hebrews is saying to you, hey, pay attention. You don't go to heaven just because you're an American. You don't go to heaven because you have a certain skin color. You don't go to heaven because you're sitting in a church today. You don't go to heaven because your parents go to heaven or your spouse is going to heaven. You must come to me in a personal relationship, and I will give you rest. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning, and you've gone through these years, and you've never really understood this? You've just been trying to be good, and you thought that's enough to get to heaven. You've been trying to be religious. You thought that's enough to get to heaven. You, maybe along the way, you just kind of thought there are many ways to heaven. And now this morning, the Holy Spirit of God again has used the Word of God to touch your hearts, to speak to you. And again, you feel the tugging of the Holy Spirit. And I can say to you, based on God's Word, today is the day of salvation. Won't you give your life to Christ
today. There's still time. There is a rest that remains for you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one's looking around. But if today's the day of salvation for you, you could pray a simple prayer in your heart. It would go something like this as I pray it out loud. Dear Lord, I now understand that not everybody goes to heaven. I understand that I'm a sinner and my sin has separated me from you. That's why Jesus came to die. And today, I'm no longer trusting in my good works or anything else. Today, I put my trust wholly and only completely in Jesus. And I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. And today, I make Jesus my Lord, my Savior, my boss, my King. I surrender to you today. And from this day forward, the best that I know how, I'll live for you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I don't want to embarrass anyone. But this morning, if you prayed that prayer with me in the stillness of your own heart as I prayed it out loud, would you just lift your hand up and you can put it right back down? Say, Paul, I prayed that prayer. Yes, I see that hand. Any others? God bless you. Any others? Say, Paul, I prayed that prayer as you prayed it. Yeah. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and you've given your life to the Lord. But you would confess to me if it was just the two of us, there's no peace in your life. There's no rest in your life. You worry and you go from here to there and you're busy and you're frantic and your life is full of anxiety and you want the peace of God that passes all understanding. Christian, there's a rest for you here and now on this earth. If you'll trust in him, you receive it by grace the same way you receive salvation. Still, heads are bowed. How many of you say, Paul, pray for me. I need that peace in my life. Yes, yes, yes. All over the room. Yes, God bless you. Father, you've seen our hands, but more importantly, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. And so we give our lives to you, new and afresh. For many, it's the first time. And for these who have given their lives to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would seal that in their hearts today. For these believers who are asking for your present tense rest for the peace that passes understanding. I pray that they would have that before the day's out and they would know it comes from you. And Father, when you give it, we promise to give you the glory and the honor and the praise. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, the guys are going to start to take the offering now. If you've got a uh, bulletin, if you'll glance at the front of it, you'll see three things. You'll see our... uh, Uh, high school graduates. It's that time of year when graduation happens. At the bottom of it, you'll see the people who have followed the Lord in the obedience of baptism since January 1. What a great list. We celebrate in these who have given their lives to Christ and been baptized. In between that, you see a little part that says tomorrow's church. That's the part that I want to talk about. Last Monday, we had a core meeting. Some of you were there. And in that core meeting, we talked about where we were five years ago, where we are now, and where we're going to be. In the last five years, a lot of things have happened. We've grown about 250 in attendance. We've baptized about 250. We've experienced a lot of growth. We've also completely updated and remodeled everything on our property. We've added elevator. We've updated and doubled the size of the kitchen, the activity center, the old Awana room. We... uh, added parking. We put lighting out there, and uh, we've put in a uh, gold-plated HVAC. Well, it's not, but that's about how much it cost. But what I want to tell you is we did all that without taking a loan out. It was almost $900,000 over the last four years that you gave so that we could do all those things. So these premises, this campus is in tip-top shape. It's really good to go. 
And so we want to change our financial focus. And what we want to do over the next 32 months is we want to start to pay down our debt. Now, we didn't take on any debt to do that remodeling. But when we moved into this building in 2008, we took on some debt. And we still owe $5.2 million. We want to pay off in the next 32 months $1 million of that. If we do it all together, it comes to about $17,000 a month. And here's how we can do it. We can do it when we all participate. If, if you just leave this to me and a couple few other people, it's going to be hard. But if we all do it together, we can accomplish this. So whether you give $10 a week or $1,000 a week, what we want to happen as the body of Christ is we want us to do this together. If we can raise that money, or really not raise it, but use it to pay down our debt, we will actually save an additional $1.5 million off of our note if we were just to pay it out over the next 20 years. That's how much interest we would save. We would save more than what we actually give to pay down our debt. And so that's what we're asking to do, with one exception. If you don't tithe, if you're not tithing, I, I want to ask you not to give to the campaign because there's, there's a more important step for you. You need to begin to experience the blessing that God gives when you trust him by tithing. In Malachi chapter 3, God says about tithing, test me in this. Give it a try. See if I won't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out on you a blessing too big to receive. How many of you would like to get a blessing too big to receive? So to you, I want to say, I want you to tithe, not because we need it, but because you need it. That's the step that I want you to take. Now, for the rest of us who are tithers, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to give something above and beyond your tithe. We still need the tithe to pay for lights and heating and air conditioning and Bibles and curriculum. But let's give something above and beyond that to pay down this debt. It will be good stewardship for us. It will allow us financial freedom to pay down the debt so we can do everything that God wants us to do. So each month, we're going to tell you how much of that money we paid down the debt, what the debt used to be, what it is now, and I believe if we'll all do this together, we'll accomplish this. So thanks for listening to me. Thanks for hearing me out. Well, there's a, there's a lot of things that I could choose as a final benediction in this passage But when we get through all of this passage, and here's kind of where we'll be going next week, when he talks about the fact that there's a heaven, there's a rest, there's an eternal rest, and there's a present rest, he says to us, this is next week's little commercial for next week, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's the first time he uses the word heaven in the chapter, then he says, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.